Hello, my name is Anne. I'll be bringing you the second reading, which is found in John chapter 14, beginning at verse 15. Jesus said, If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realise that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Anne, and thank you, Brian, for leading us in prayer. And wasn't that a wonderful hymn we sang before? What a wonderful change when Jesus came into my heart. A beautiful one. Well, let's uh, pray that um, that may be the case as we reflect on the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what we lack, do fill us. What we do not know, please be our teacher, especially as we consider the Holy Spirit, your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over four weeks, we started last week, we're considering the doctrine, the teachings, the person of the Holy Spirit. Of course, four weeks is not nearly enough to do justice to the significance and the importance of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. I mean, how can we ever, if you think about it, how can we ever exhaust understanding God, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit? It would be a bit like trying to read every single book in the State Library and understanding it all. That's impossible. We can never exhaust understanding God. But yet, at the same time, over these four weeks, there are truths that we must not only understand, but we must believe about the Holy Spirit. We must believe. And we're going to try over the next few weeks. 
You see, the Holy Spirit is perhaps one where many Christians have trouble understanding. And that has led in the wider Christian church some very strange ideas about the Holy Spirit. Because if you think about the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, Father we can understand, can't we? Many of us, our fathers ourselves, we all have fathers, we can understand fatherhood. In fact, we understand fatherhood only rightly when we understand the fatherhood of God. Jesus Christ the Son, we can understand that, sonship, that makes sense, being the Son. But also he was one who became man. And so that makes sense. It's tangible. Jesus lived and came to earth, walked, spoke, taught, ate, performed miracles. Tangible. We can understand. Father, easy. Son, easy. Holy Spirit. What are we meant to understand? How are we meant to understand the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity? In the Old English, the King James Version, you read not Holy Spirit, but Holy Ghost. And I remember as a kid, ghost. That's freaky stuff. How are we meant to understand this? It's frightening enough. And you see this confusion when Christians speak about the Holy Spirit as a thing or as an it or as some impersonal force, a bit like in Star Wars, you know, some force that just moves and does things. But of course, that's not right. The Holy Spirit is not a thing or an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. It is, it is, it's not it, it's he. You see, you, you don't grieve a thing. You don't lie to a thing, but you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can lie to the Holy Spirit. He is a person. And the confusion about the Holy Spirit is not a modern phenomenon. In fact, it's been for many centuries. Back in the 17th century, English Puritan Thomas Goodwin, he said this, and I'll read it. There is a general omission in the saints of God in their not giving the Holy Spirit that glory which is due to his person and for his great work of salvation in us, insomuch that we have in our hearts almost lost this third person. We give daily in our thoughts, prayers, affections and speeches an honour to the Father and the Son. But who directs the aims of his praise unto God the Holy Spirit? He is a person in the Godhead, equal with the Father and the Son. The work he does for us in its kind is as great as those of the Father or the Son. Therefore, by the equity of all law, a proportionate honour is due to him. It's a helpful quote, isn't it? We must honour the Holy Spirit. He is the third person of the Trinity. And perhaps what what Thomas Goodwin mentioned there, it's the fault many of us feel today. Not enough honour to the Holy Spirit. And that's my hope over these next few weeks, that we do honour. And we do not only acknowledge the Holy Spirit, but we do have a deep sense of the awe and majesty of the person of the Holy Spirit. And so let's consider. Now, if you have the outlines, there's an outline um, there on the inside, which you may find helpful. So up to point number two, the promise of the Spirit. Now, before we get to John 14, I'm going to do a little, something a little different today. It's worth us sort of taking a step back and looking at the big picture. How did we get to this point where Jesus would make such a promise in John 14? You see, what Jesus said in this passage was not a random thing. It wasn't as though Jesus came to earth and thought, well, it's a good idea to give our spirit, so let's just do that. 
Not at all. So I want us to, in a sense, step back, a big step back, and to consider the big picture of God's cosmic plans. And I want us to go back all the way to the very beginning. In fact, not just to Genesis 1 at creation, but before Genesis 1, before anything came into being, before the universe, before the stars, the planet, the skies, the animals, before all of that. Now, before creation, what was there? Or more accurately, who was there? Well, you see, before everything came into being, there was already the eternal trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. So we're going before Genesis 1, all the way back into all eternity. God was already there as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so in all eternity past, what we have before even the first ant came on earth What we already had was in perfect relationship of mutual love and service and self-giving and harmony and peace. Theologians call that the intra-Trinitarian relationship. God the Father, Son and Spirit relating within themselves, within the Godhead in perfect unity. Broughton Knox, a, a former principal of the Bible college I attended, He said, the doctrine of the Trinity is the glory of the Christian religion. Why? Because it shows what is ultimate reality. When you want to think about what is ultimate reality, you have to go all the way up, and we go all the way up to God, who is Trinity. And what is ultimate reality about? Well, ultimate reality is about personal relationship. Because the very nature of God, Father, Son, and Spirit is relational. And so before people, before animals, before plants, before the stars, the waterfalls, there was already, because of God as Trinity, relationship. That was ultimate reality, and that remains ultimate reality. And that's why when we as human beings, when we relate to one another, The best relationships are those that reflect ultimate reality. And so husbands, fathers, we're better fathers, better husbands, better wives, better mothers, sons, daughters, friends, bosses, employees, if our relationship with one another reflects the Trinity, reflects ultimate reality of other person's centeredness, self-giving and love. And so if you want to know what perfect relationship looks like, Where do you look? I mean, we might get glimpses as we look at each other live our lives. But you get perfect relationship by looking at the Trinity. Perfect love, perfect joy, perfect unity, perfect harmony and intimacy. You look at the Trinity. And so that's before creation, before the universe came into being. Father, Son and Spirit, completely fulfilled completely satisfied without a need in the world. And that's why when God created people, when we come to Genesis 1, it's not as though God was lonely and needed someone to relate to, as though God needed a friend. I remember when my daughter Esther, when she was still in primary school, You know, parents, we are concerned for our children and I was concerned whether she would have any friends during recess and lunchtime and whether she'll play with anyone. 
And so I asked Esther, so, so are you playing with any friends? Do you have any? And, and what do you do? What, what does the school do if you don't have any friends? And she responded by saying, well, there is a buddy seat in the playground, a buddy seat. And so what that was, was if you felt lonely, you have no friends, you go and sit down in the buddy seat. And when people notice you sitting there, they'll come and sit next to you and be your friend. And so Esther, have you ever sat there in the buddy seat? And she responded, well, no one sits there. <laughs> but, but I share that because it's not as though God was lonely. And he created the universe as though he created a buddy seat. So he would sit in it so that some people would come along and befriend him. Not that at all. You see, when God created human beings, we're thinking cosmic, we're thinking big picture here. When God created human beings, when God created you and me, it was not out of need because it was fully satisfied already. It was out of love. It was out of the overflow of his love that he made the world and us. Now we come to Genesis 1 and 2. God created the world and he made Adam and Eve and it was all very good. It's almost too good to try to imagine back into the time of the garden, what it was like before the fall. Not just creation being pristine, untouched, unpolluted, but the purity of relationship between Adam and Eve, such that they were naked and felt no shame. Completely open, exposed, but it was pure, it was good. No envy, no jealousy, no disappointment, no bad knee, no bad back. None of that whatsoever. Beautiful openness of relationship with nothing to hide. But the best part of that garden experience was not just the wonderful creation and not just their relationship. The best part was that God would walk with them. God would be in their presence. They would live in the presence of God. There was a relationship with God that was untainted. And so you can just try to imagine what life would have been like for Adam and Eve before the fall. But of course, that fellowship with God was short-lived. And you know how the story goes. Adam and Eve, we saw it in the kids' talk. They thought they knew better. They wanted independence from God, which was a breaking of fellowship. God created them for fellowship. But they broke that fellowship by wanting independence from God. They disobeyed God and they rebelled against God. And so since then, Genesis 3, the world and all humanity descended into darkness. And so there was separation between creator and creature. The fellowship is broken. Now I'm still setting up the scene for, for why Jesus would say what he did. And so the scene set for what God would then do throughout world history, human history, the Old Testament, to bring light back into the world and to restore that fellowship between creator and creature. And what we find is really wonderful when you go through the Old Testament. It is extraordinary what God did because he promised that he would restore this fellowship, this broken relationship to an even better, more intimate a closer, deeper experience than what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. God promised something even deeper in that fellowship. 
And I think we get a clue right at the very beginning. It is subtle. In fact, we don't, in fact, we don't pick it up in the English language, but I'll point it out to you. Now, in Genesis 2, when God formed the first man, this is what we read. The Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now, the word breath there, you don't see it in the English because it's translated as breath. But the Hebrew word for breath in that instance is neshama. Now, you don't need to know why that is the case, and I'll show you why I'm showing you this in a moment. But that's just the word for breath. And so God breathed breath into his nostrils. He became a living being, a living soul. He was alive. And so Adam then was alive. He had a relationship with God. He was able to walk with God until he sinned and was banished from the garden. But you see, right at the very beginning, that life that he had with God was, in a sense, not permanent. God was just with him and walked with him. And in a sense, that's what we see throughout the Old Testament, even when God gave his spirit to his chosen people. Like King Saul, remember him? The Spirit of the Lord came upon him with power. He was given that special relationship with God, but yet the Spirit departed from him when he sinned. And the same was King, with King David. What happened with him? The Spirit of the Lord came upon David with power. And when David sinned, remember when he committed adultery and murder? David wrote in, this, in his prayer in Psalm 51, and you can see his, his desperation. He cried out, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And that's because David knew for him to have a fellowship, a relationship with the Lord, he needed the Spirit of God. That was how he would relate with God. And now finally, we get to the promise of God. How will God restore the fellowship to an even deeper, more intimate relationship than what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden? And this is where you have to notice the subtlety. Because now we come to the prophet Ezekiel. And he was given, if you know the prophet Ezekiel, he was given the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. Remember that picture? It's meant to be a picture of the people of God spiritually dead. It's a graveyard. They are deep in darkness. And then listen to the promise of God. Because it's very similar to what God said in Genesis 2. When God created Adam, but a different word is used. In Ezekiel 37, this is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. Now what should be ringing in our minds? Sounds very similar to Genesis 2 when he created the first man. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you. And you'll come to life. See that? Very similar, isn't it, to how God created the first man. However, here's a subtlety that we don't pick up in the English. The word breath that is used here in this prophecy, in the life that God will give, in the life that God promises, is a different Hebrew word. It's a word, ruach, which can be translated as breath or wind or spirit. And in case we're confused, a few verses later, God says very clearly in his promise, in verse 14, 
I will put my spirit, it's the same word, ruach, and you will live. And so the difference we're meant to see is in the first man, God promises to give life, breath. But now he, in fact, promises to give his spirit. And so in a sense, God is saying, the type of fellowship I'm promising now is one where I'm giving you not just my breath of life, but I'm giving you myself. I'm giving you my spirit. Do you notice that? It's profound. God is saying, I'm giving you myself. I'm not just giving you my breath, my neshama, but I'm giving you my spirit, my ruach. I'm not merely going to walk beside you like I did with Adam. I was only next to Adam, but I'm going to be in you by my spirit. And so we're trying to get the big picture why Jesus made that promise. You see, the life of Adam was vastly different to the spiritual life God promises when he will give his spirit. And that's about fellowship with God. It will be far deeper, far more intimate, and it will be permanent. And so that's the big picture. God is relational even before the creation of the earth. And the promises of the Old Testament was that God will relate to his people the way God relates to himself within the Trinity. And now we come to John 14. You can see why Jesus made that promise. It wasn't random. It wasn't out of the blue. And so what did Jesus promise? Well, the context was Jesus was comforting his disciples. It was at the Last Supper, the night before his crucifixion. And Jesus makes the promise. In John 14, so if you have your Bibles, we're back to John 14 now. Verses 16 and 17. Jesus promised, And I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. All those Old Testament expectations of fellowship with God, well, Jesus now promises that, and it is about to happen. Do you see how we needed to see the big picture before we get to John 14? And what would the Spirit do? Well, now we get to our third point, if you're still following along with our outline. What's the work of the Spirit? Well, in a sense, what has the Spirit not done for our salvation? You see, in all Jesus did for our salvation, it is not separated from the work of the Spirit. Have you thought about that? There's no separation between Jesus and the Spirit in the work of our salvation. You think about incarnation, Christmas. We're going to celebrate Christmas soon. In the incarnation, where was the Spirit? Well, Mary was conceived by the Spirit. The Spirit was there. Or in the ministry of Jesus, at his baptism, where was the Spirit? Well, the Spirit descended upon Jesus, empowered him for his ministry. In the crucifixion of Jesus, where was the Spirit? Well, we read in Hebrews 9, it was through the eternal spirit that Jesus offered himself unblemished to the Father. It was through the spirit. Or in the resurrection, well, we read in 1 Peter 3, he was put to death in the body, but made alive by the spirit. And so you cannot separate Jesus and the spirit. And that's why English Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle, he said, 
Whatever individual Christians have, are, and enjoy, they owe to the agency of God the Holy Spirit. And so here in our passage, John 14, Jesus speaks of two specific roles of the Spirit, and it all has to do with God restoring that fellowship that was broken by Adam and Eve. Two specific roles, counsellor and the Spirit of truth. So let's have a reflection on that. God calls him another counsellor. Do you notice the word another? And that's because the Spirit will continue to fulfill the same role as the first counsellor, and that is Jesus Christ. You see, just as Jesus was was God's presence with the disciples while he was on earth, he was with them, so the Spirit will continue God's presence, but now in them after Jesus departs. And the word for counsellor is the word paraclete. It comes from the Greek, paraclete. It's got the prefix para, which means alongside, next to, beside, para. And kaleo, the Greek word kaleo. In fact, one of the crash kids, a twin boy, is called kaleo. It means to call. And so paraclete means the one who is called alongside to help. The one who is called alongside to be the comforter, the helper, the one who strengthens and encourages. And do you notice in that verse... He will be with you forever. The promise is different to what Adam and Eve enjoyed. That was temporary and it was only beside. This is the Spirit given in and it will be forever. The Spirit will be God's presence and constant comforter forever. And that's why Jesus said, you'll never be left as orphans. You'll never be alone. Ever. You see how important that is to understand the role of the Spirit in the life of Christians. It's how we have fellowship with God. And a flavor for us to understand the the role of the Spirit is as we reflect on, on Christians before us. If you read stories of Christians who have been persecuted in terrible ways because of their faith, imprisoned, you have to ask, how do you persevere in prison? If you've been tortured brutalized how do you press on and endure and so you read of john bunyan the puritan preacher he was imprisoned for 12 years because of his faith what did he do in prison didn't give up didn't commit suicide in fact he was in prison when he wrote pilgrim's progress how do you move on how do you press on well it's the comforter the holy spirit You read of Dietrich Bonhoeffer during World War II under Nazi Germany in prison. It's very easy to give up knowing that you're going to die. He was executed in the end, but he persevered in faith and he wrote some wonderful Christian works. Or Richard Wurmbrand, Romanian Lutheran priest, in prison for about 14 years in a gulag. His wife was in prison for five of those years. In prison, he was tortured, beaten, brutalized. He describes it in his book. He witnessed in prison. He didn't give up. He witnessed, in fact, to the torturers, to the secret police. And some even came to faith. How do you persevere when you're under such torture and brutality? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And those of us who are Christians, I suspect we know exactly what that means. And I suspect we know what that looks like. You know, Some of you have shared stories with me of 
of the pain and the difficulty and the hardships you've been through. And some is just heartbreaking. And I'm left thinking, how do you wake up each day? How do you press on? How do you still live with hope and joy? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. God's presence with us. And I suspect we all know what that means. And so first role, Holy Spirit as comforter. Next, the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth. And so we look at verse 26 now, verse uh, chapter 14. He will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. And then if we jump to chapter 16, Jesus makes it even clearer. When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking what is mine and making it known to you. You see, it was Jesus who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so what is the work of the Spirit? To point our hearts to the truth, to who Jesus is. To take the things of Jesus and to show it to us so that we would believe. And that's so important to understand as we think about the Holy Spirit. Because this is where Christians, we can get it wrong and get the Spirit confused. The role of the Spirit is one where he's self-effacing. He's the often called the shy member of the Trinity. And that's because his role is to put the spotlight on Jesus Christ and not on himself. And so when our heart's affection and worship is on Jesus, the Spirit is working. And so when Christians talk about the Spirit doing something that is not about Jesus at all, or very different to the Word of God, then you have to ask, well, that's not the Spirit, and certainly not the Spirit of truth. You see, the work of the Spirit of truth helps us understand and believe what is true. Those of us, we all know that we are sinners. How do we come to know that we're sinners and guilty? That's the work of the Spirit. How do we come to know God and to fear Him and to recognize that He is judge? That's the work of the Spirit of truth. How do we come to know? You know, it's intangible. We cannot see it. We cannot put our hands on it. But we know deep down that God loves us. That's the work of the Spirit of truth. How do we come to trust Jesus as a Savior? That is the work of the Spirit. And so J.C. Ryle again, he said, In a word, all that believers have from grace to glory all that they are from the first moment they believe to the day they depart to be with Christ, all, all, all may be traced to the work of God, the Holy Spirit. He is the counselor. He is the spirit of truth. Now, finally, our final point, we get to the fellowship of the spirit. Now, remember that big picture when we considered that before. From all eternity past... What is ultimate reality? Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect unity. The eternal trinity. And then Ezekiel, God promises to breathe his spirit into his people. And in this passage, that's exactly what Jesus promised. In verse 18, if you have a look, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. That's the promise of the Spirit. Verse 20, on that day you'll realize that I'm in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. 
It, it sounds very convoluted there. But if we understand this, it should blow our minds because what is promised there? Well, the promise there is that what God as Trinity has enjoyed for all eternity past, the closeness, the intimacy of relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, we are now swept up into that Trinitarian relationship. We have been brought in to what God has experienced for all eternity. You see, it's not just God merely saying, your sins are forgiven, you're redeemed, you can now come to heaven, but we still have some distance between us. N not at all. It's far more than that. God is saying, I am giving you me. You want to know how close? I'm giving you me. And we truly can have fellowship with God. This is the idea of mutual indwelling, Father, Son, and Spirit, and now us included in that, included in the relationship of the Trinity. Just as Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus, Jesus is also in us by his Spirit. I mean, you think about that. You cannot be any closer to God. You know how some, some Christians talk about, I don't feel very close to God, he feels very far. That may be a, a true feeling that you're feeling, but the reality is that if you are a Christian, you cannot get any closer to God than having his Spirit in you and you in him. And that's why Jesus goes on, verse 23 now. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That is the glory of what it means to be a Christian. God has come to make his home in us. Now, reflect on that for a moment. Would you make your home anywhere? I mean, I've been to some pretty terrible motels. I would not want to stay there a minute longer. I've been to some nice hotels, five-star hotels. When God says he's going to come and make his home in us, are you a you know, dodgy motel or are you a five-star hotel? Well, let me say we're all like filthy motels. Filthy motels. But God chooses by his grace to cleanse us and make his home in us. It is extraordinary. We cannot get any closer to God, nor God closer to us. You see the difference between this relationship now and what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. I mean, this past week, I was just trying to grapple how glorious and awesome this is, this fellowship with God. When God promised to breathe his spirit in the book of Ezekiel, it's more than just giving life. It is being swept up into the Trinity himself. I mean, just think about our human relationships. You know, we all have varying degrees of closeness in our relationships. There are some we would go to the cafe and have coffee with. That's the extent of the relationship. There are some we would text. There are some we would pick up the phone and have a chat with. But then there are some we would invite into our homes. And there are some we would go on holidays with, we would share our lives with. And then there are some we would, in fact, share our feelings with. One of the privileges in being a pastor is that many of you have opened up your life and your hearts to me so that I can hear of your joys and your burdens and your pains and your longings. 
But let me ask you, how many would you open up your heart completely to? Completely. You show them completely what is inside your heart. You be completely vulnerable with them. They see right into your heart. They see it all. No shields, no barriers. I suspect even some spouses will find that difficult with their own spouse. But God, in giving his spirit, not only came into our hearts, he opened up his heart so that he's taken us right into his heart. So that our relationship with God is as intimate as the Son is with the Father. And that's why the Spirit enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. That's what it means to have fellowship with the Spirit. We have been wrapped up, caught up, absorbed, and swept up into the Trinitarian love. There's no greater privilege than that. Fellowship with the Spirit. It's why Presbyterians, we're almost done. We have a burning bush as our logo. I'm not sure if many of you are aware of that. If you see the pulpit behind me, you'll realize that. Now, the origin of this seal, it looks like this. It's behind, you can come and have a look after the service. Not now, but afterwards. The origin of this seal goes back to the French Reformed Church, likely influenced by Calvin. It's a picture of the burning bush in the story of Moses. And there are the Latin words, which I won't dare pronounce, but there it is. And that's what it means in English. Yet it was not consumed. Why is that sort of like the emblem, the, the motto, the symbol of the church? Well, what it's trying to depict is how Christians is filled with the Spirit of God. We have God in us but we are not consumed. God is a consuming fire, but yet God dwells within his people by his Spirit, and they are not consumed. That is fellowship with the Spirit. And then after the resurrection of Jesus, he appeared to his disciples. And do you know what Jesus did? The fulfillment of the prophecy that Ezekiel spoke. In John 20, Jesus said, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Spirit. I'm coming to you and you're coming to me. We're going to be like this. And then at Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out upon all believers so that all enjoyed fellowship with the Spirit. You see, my hope at the beginning is that today and over the next few weeks, we'll have a deeper sense of the awe and wonder of the Holy Spirit. He is our fellowship with God, as close to God we can ever dream or imagine. Jesus is in us, and he'll never be taken away. And so when we're left asking, am I lonely? No. Am I helpless? No. Am I far from God? No. Am I unloved? No, for we have the Spirit of Christ in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your rich mercy, that because of Jesus Christ, your Son, who bled for us and was raised to life again, that you have granted us now your Spirit who dwells in us to be our comforter, our teacher, the one we, through whom we relate to you, our Father in heaven. 
Help us to be in awe and wonder of what you've done for us in your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.